Save the date for the 12th of September. Join our webinar on digital transformation in manufacturing. We are exploring how IoT, AI and smart factories are reshaping our sector. Hear from industry leaders like Airbus, Rolls-Royce and Heriot Watt University. This is a must attend for professionals and decision makers in manufacturing. So register now at resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. That's resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. The link is also in the description. I had a fascinating conversation this week with Kenton Robbins, Group Managing Director at PFF Packaging. We discussed how best to manage plastic production, use and reuse, the associated PR issues, plus how the industry can meet the targets set in Paris, as well as this year's COP26. From Redfern Media, this is Remake Manufacturing. My guest this week is Kenton Robbins, Group Managing Director for PFF Packaging. He's been a director for two of the UK's largest FMCG PLCs and worked in both public and private sectors. He now leads PFF Packaging, one of the UK's largest independent food packaging manufacturers. So Kenton Robbins, welcome to the show. Oh, morning. How are you doing? Yeah, great to be with you and uh, looking forward to getting into all things manufacturing. Excellent. So let's start with PFF. It's one of the giants of the UK plastics industry, founded by husband and wife team Andy and Michelle Bairstow in 1993. Can you tell us a little bit more about the company for those who don't know too much about it? Yeah, definitely. It's a it's a fairly well established, but we are the largest independently owned uh, plastic rigid packaging firm in the UK. Uh, we have the enviable task of competing with the giants above us from American corporations, billion plus all the way through to some of the most recognisable names in uh, packaging, packaging manufacturing across Europe. But we are still a family business at heart. We thrive on entrepreneurialism and we focus on delivering challenging projects that a lot of our competition don't. So ultimately, we end up uh, doing the things that we, we like and enjoy and see the real value in rather than just going for uh, volume. And no one can deny that plastic is is essential in today's world, but its use has um, come under the microscope in recent years for obvious reasons. Some estimates say we produce over 300 million tonnes of it each year. What can we do to reduce that and make it more uh, contained and economical? It's interesting, really, because the industry has become under the microscope more increasingly since uh, the Blue Planet programs and focusing predominantly on uh, the recycling issues around plastic. But it's like anything. It's a material that has inherent value, but is open to abuse. As the world becomes more developed and, you know, the rest of the world wants to be more like the Western world and is seen to be consumerism focused in its growth, it's ultimately leading to challenges. Plastic is getting abused, it's getting lost along with general waste into the waterways of the world and the seas. And ultimately, it's generally the plastic that floats to the top and becomes the most visible problem. Mm. Uh, The reality is that all the waste goes in the sea. Uh, It's just the plastic that survives it. Wood rots, metal sinks, a lot of it just dissolves. But the plastic being so durable just, just, you know, endures and floats. The reality is that we all should be more responsible for making sure this valuable resource is retained and returned in the right way. When it's dealt with correctly and we have strong recycling and circular economies to make sure that we engage with the future of its uh, its issues well, it is a valuable resource that, that everybody should be engaged with. It really is. I mean, 
there are certain sectors that it's been, you know, totally game changing with. The food industry has driven food waste down through the use of plastics and modified atmosphere. The medical industry has innovated for many years and will continue on through the use of plastics. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I certainly don't fancy a glass catheter at some point in my old age, that's for sure. <laughs> so there are elements where it's it's indisposable. But we do need to find greater ways of using less of it and getting it back. And that that is, in essence, everything that we focus on. It's kind of unusual that you have a business strategy that's uh, duplicitous in its nature. We want to sell as little as possible but also maximize the amount that we sell through the right channels. So therefore, the the greatest share of the market is driven through recycled and recyclable materials and packaging solutions that ultimately mean that we can get it back to ourselves and we can reuse it over and over and over again. Mm. And how do you balance um, that good management that you're talking about with uh, your bottom line of of producing plastic for for people to buy? How How do you advocate for a reduction while still producing? Well... It's an interesting dilemma that a lot of our customers are only just really waking up to. We've innovated for the last 10 years in PFF, the use of our pet, and ensuring that the product quality of our sheet that's extruded is of the the very finest possible. Now I'm seeing a shift towards more acceptance of cloudy materials, more recycled blended materials, to make sure that actually almost they're showing their customers that they're using recycled material. Most of the people that have been eating out of our products for the last 10 years haven't realized that the product they're eating is fully recycled and recyclable. And the fact that it is so good ultimately means that people almost don't believe it. There is an incredible amount of greenwashing going on in the world at the moment with regards to aspects of packaging where they're doing things just because they want to be seen to be doing it. It has no perceived benefit beyond that of the person that's buying it. The impact is worse, if not uh, the same in many cases. And ultimately, they're not renewable resources in the way that we can get product recycling through this circular economy. You know, the water that's required to recycle a lot of products is the biggest challenge globally. We don't tend to see that as a huge issue here in the UK because we're abundant with water. Mm. But water is just about the number one resource that people uh, really strive for in other countries and other nations. And as you say, in some ways, you're in a very difficult position. Uh, Customers are asking to make things more sustainable, but they aren't willing to pay more for the products how do you square that circle innovation we've we've used our skills and abilities and our expertise you know built up through the business and through andy the the chief exec and owner of the company to to really drive innovation it's at the heart of everything we do now we don't invest in any product unless we're we are taking out a substantial amount of its weight in the plastic packaging or we're innovating into complete new marketplaces where that product is going to be seen as a as a linchpin for the future We've got new innovations coming down the line and new kit arriving in the new year that we've been working hard on bringing to market, which will help do that, where we're combining substrates. We are seeing ourselves less and less as a plastic packaging organization and a provider of solutions that are balanced more than anything else. And that in itself is proving really rewarding and challenging work, but ultimately has given us the uh, the stretch that we need to push further and further. And, and you, are, you yourself are a big advocate of sustainability within the industry. Can you tell us about PFF's sustainability initiatives? Yeah, it's interesting, really, because we it, it's somewhat easier for us in some respects. We, we have a strong sourcing policy, which gives us an uh, ethical approach to everything that we do. 
we ensure that the companies that we buy our raw materials when they're virgin resins, that they are way up there in terms of the best and most exemplified manufacturers in the world. So therefore, we start with the very front end of our supply chain, ensuring that the people that we work with have the credentials that we would be proud of ourselves. We then apply efficiency through the whole manufacturing process and recyclability wherever possible. There is virtually nothing leaves our factory for landfill. 99.9% of everything that we do is recycled within our business and reused. And the only elements of recycling that we can't really achieve, we then take off site and get somebody else to do it for us. Purgings for the injection molders are recycled by uh, Ames for us. And there are other aspects that we drive it forward. But the predominance of our, our carbon footprint comes from the electricity that we use. It's a highly intensive electrical manufacturing process. And as time goes by, we're getting more and more opportunity to access green energy tariffs to give us an ability to give choice for our customers as well. And in the next few years, we're planning on migrating onto giving that ability to almost every customer to have a choice to say, look, you can pay more and use green renewable energy for the manufacturer for the proportion of your product. That choice is going to be key for the consumer and key for our customers in the future. And as long as we do everything with clean efficiency in the way that we manufacture it and make sure that it is at the highest global standards, then that's the most that you can seriously do. Mm. And how do you measure that? Um, do, you, do you have a, a target system that you set for yourself? Well, we've always been so focused on using all of our waste. Maybe that's because we're Yorkshiremen. I'm not quite sure. You, we, we could, we, it could be an innate genetic uh, DNA thing that we have, but we, we've never wasted anything. We've always had very focused uh, KPIs with regards to uh, yields from the manufacturing process. And over the last few years, we've gone further and targeted, like I've said, these supply chain routes that give us the best-in-class footprints for, for the green and carbon offset that there is available in the industry. Moving forward is probably where the bigger changes are going to cha- are going to come to the organisation as we, we engage more and more with external consultancies to assess our impact and we set clear standards for our for being carbon neutral in the future. It, it's easy for us in some respects because there is little manufacturing outside of the use of electricity. But the key here is making sure that we use as little electricity. We make it as efficient as possible. We transfer as little amount of heat as required to do the processes that we need to do. And also there, we've got also aspects of things that manufacturing processes that we haven't gone into because of their impact on the environment. You know, quite recently, in the last few years, we, we've looked at other manufacturing sectors to go and enter into and decided that doesn't have a future because of the requirement for the amount of water that it uses, the amount of energy. So we've, we've taken some clear decisions corporately. It's difficult to quantify it. That, that is one of the biggest challenges. And I, and I fully envisage in the next five years, companies of our size will have their own uh, individual consultants that are assessing your carbon footprint and performance on a weekly, daily basis. And it becomes as much as a part of your KPI dashboard on a, on a weekly manufacturing call as it comes in any part of the business. And I do also believe that it isn't long far away before the value of your company is almost assessed as well with regards to your ability to have a circular economy and be engaged in that uh, that sustainable manufacturing process. And there's also a lot of debate at the moment over what tools we use to calculate the impact of plastic on carbon emissions. In your opinion, what model should we be using? <laughs> well, that's a really good question, isn't it, really? I'm no expert on it. And that's part of the challenge, I think, to be completely honest, because you've got leaders like me that are, that, are, that are pretending to know everything rather than being very open and honest and saying, I'm, this, is emerging, this is emerging understanding and, and, it's, and it's analysis that isn't there in plain every single part of the organization. 
because as much as you can go and measure the electrical usage and your carbon footprint and the downstream impact of that using one of any of the five or six key recognized models, the reality is there's always leakage in everything that you do. So we're looking and taking a very great uh, understanding of the, the whole supply chain process to give us an impact. So to give you a bit of an example, rather than just assessing what one impact has for one of our customers, you know, we take somebody like Morrison's and say, look, your products have this impact because we've looked at your products. But they have all sorts of associated over, overheads expended with those products that's very hard to attribute to those. And you only really attribute those in, in a proportioning sense. You say, right, that's X percent of my business, so therefore they have X percent of the carbon footprint. But it, it isn't that simple. Mm. <laughs> I think having a more closed-loop approach and, and capturing the entire process and analysing it in great detail, although feels like an expensive luxury for a company of our size in some respects, but it's essential for the future. You know, what I really want to do in the next two years is to better sit in front of all of my customers in great detail and absolute confidence, tell them exactly what I think the impact of their products are. Because at the moment, it's not that easy. It's challenging and, it, and, it's, and it's open to debate, as you say, because there are different methodologies of assessing this. The bigger challenge we have at the moment is that we, we are working in certain sectors with PPE for the Department of Health through the pandemic. And we're looking at products that are being now bought in the UK that were being bought abroad. And the question we're asked regularly now is, how much better is the, having a, a product manufactured in the UK versus a carbon footprint from a product that's been shipped in from China? Mm. So that in itself is quite challenging because you can give, and we have figures for our carbon footprint, but actually then benchmarking internationally doesn't always give you the right view because the impact of the carbon footprint of, of a boat traveling from one side of the world to the other doesn't give you any impact really understanding of the use of the water or the social deprivation that come on the back of it or the health and safety issues that have come as a result of that. Because if there's one thing I've learned in recent uh, recent months and over the pandemic is having procured uh, along with Andy a vast number of Chinese machinery to stand up a response for the NHS fast to solve the pandemic challenges that they were facing these are inherently challenging machinery to run that you would not generally want to run and there's a greater impact it isn't just about the carbon footprint it's the social value that comes with it as well mm. yeah, and you're talking about um, working to produce the PPE that we needed for the pandemic is that right that's right, yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we were luckily uh, in the right place at the right time to help and support. And we took the project on with a with a very stern challenge from the Department of Health to help them, which was uh, how quickly can you start manufacturing something you've never even produced before or seen? Mm. <laughs> and although on the face of it, you look back with hindsight and it's gone well, it's been a very challenging 18 months, two years working with them. But in reality, we... We did our bit to support the frontline workers with disposable aprons, of all things. Right. Not a core competency that PFF was used to manufacturing. And certainly, uh, we ended up having to utilize a very basic technology procured from China because of speed uh, and flying it into the UK and building a facility up in the Northeast uh, to support the pandemic response. We ultimately invested and designed in the UK two machines to help offset that uh, capacity and uh, some high volume, high precision manufacturing equipment was designed to uh, to try and uh, pick up the slack from the Chinese machines. So it's been it's been fantastic. We, we produced just under a billion plastic aprons for the NHS and took the view not to leverage the commercials, which a lot of companies did through that process and saw opportunity to make enough money to be retiring. We viewed it very differently. We saw it as a great opportunity to support made in Britain, really, in lots of ways. And 
and take a bit of that response to create resilience in our own manufacturing competency in the UK and, and bring it back to shores, which is what we've done. And, and very proud of that fact. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. So pulling back um, and, and taking that wider view you were talking about before, uh, let's talk about the targets set by Paris uh, for the UK to reduce carbon emissions. Are you optimistic that we can hit those? How realistic are they? Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, you know, I think it was six years ago that the uh, the COP in Paris set a load of targets that were focused on the reduction down below two and a half percent, two and a half degrees uh, increase in global climate. Now, on the face of it, everybody's looking back, having gone through the recent COP26 in Glasgow in the UK mm-hmm. and said, well, they, they, they haven't done very well. They didn't meet a lot of our targets. But six years ago is a hell of a long time in the uh, the renewables industry. And that sector, they were banking on industry technology that wasn't really established six years ago and it's only really coming to fruition now. So although it feels like on the face of it, the targets that were set were too challenging or unrealistic or nobody really committed to achieving them, I think the latter is really unfair because not that they haven't been achieved, there has been a huge effort in terms of lots of manufacturing sectors to try and drive towards greater levels of neutrality on carbon output. But there has been a swage of technologies now that have been deployed that are much easier to access than ever before. You know, the wind farm off Dogger Bank is now not far off the size of Yorkshire, I understand, and generating, we've gone for a number of weeks and months where we've gone off renewable energy for day after day after day, week after week after week after month after month in the UK Mm. for the first time in history, not not just the first time ever, but the first time for a consistent period ever in the human race. Mm. Now, we underestimate that, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. You know, the sustainability sector is growing. You need manufacturing like ours to do their bit to try and limit their impact as much as possible and reinvent and invigorate the marketplaces that they're in and challenge the norm by engaging with the innovation in couple with good sources of clean, renewable energy. That in itself will then start to push the tip and the balance in the right direction, I think. We're also seeing a big shift through the pandemic of shopping behaviours, we're seeing people shopping locally, working from home, which will all impact the environment in the right direction. And very, very welcome. We should all do our bit and take it uh, on the chin to uh, make sure that we're standing up shoulder to shoulder with the commitments from our leaders as well and the countries. Because the COP was a fantastic opportunity to raise the awareness for everybody. And, and ultimately, it's our responsibilities because the number of times that we've been challenged over the last four or five years with regards to plastic, and we've spoke openly about what we would like to do and how we do it, and we've spoken with great detail with various uh, campaign groups about uh, the environment and what it means and what our products mean to the environment, yet quite often the, the, the loop is left completely wide open by recycling on roads, on curbside recycling in MRF centres in, in local council, and you speak to the local councils and as much as they would like to put in a fantastic new centre that will scavenge plastics in all the different substrates accurately, they don't have the finances to do it. And people do not have the appetite to want to pay more in their council tax to want to fund these opportunities. So they're left to the, to the private sector to fund them themselves, which usually means there's got to be value in there above and beyond the commercials to make it happen because there's risk associated with it. Mm. And that's the one thing that I think is missed. You know, there is... To, to make this all work, there is lots of business leaders and business owners and shareholders out there taking huge risks to try and make some of this happen. Well, talking about leadership and the recent COP26, uh, were you impressed by what you what you heard from them or, or did you feel like it was a lot of hot air? I think um, 
it's one of those opportunities that can be skewed so badly and can be so reliant on the political temperature around an environment like that. Because if you listen to the opening ceremonies and the speeches that were made, it was fantastic. You know, for those of you that do or don't like Boris Johnson, he is he is a jar of marmite for most people. The reality is that he spoke the sense. He had a strong sense of commitments. I think he rallied the troops correctly. He used far too many analogies associated with football, which never sit well with me. That's a personal thing. But then he's followed up by Sir David Attenborough and Prince Charles. And nobody could ever question Sir David Attenborough's credentials with regards to the environment and commitment from a lifelong career to trying to show everybody what's happening. Prince Charles stood up, and whether you're a royalist or not makes no difference. The man could stand there and actually say, I put a blueprint out for people in all all parts of business and manufacturing with 100 points that you can apply to your business. He's off his own back. He's done a roadmap for, for organizations to get engaged with and look at. There should be greater levels of sharing, though. You know, there are great businesses that do a lot to try and show neutrality. You've had people like Cranswick Foods recently and Arla all announced their carbon neutrality programs. It would be nice to be able to speak to those guys directly and get some forums going about sharing and understanding what it is that can be shared amongst manufacturing, the best practices, and see where there's gains to be had there. But yet to see, I guess, the greatest impact of all, which is the people power rallying behind it. The COP itself was uh, was an opportunity for the media to throw spin from memory as well. There were a couple of challenging political things swimming around the government at the same time. And ultimately, the, the, the shadow can be taken away. Whereas, you know, even, even after the event, I noticed there was a couple of reports talking about there was five to 600 people, delegates there, all from uh, the, the oil industry. And they were being highlighted as trying to be there to lobby. You could argue just as well they're there to try and learn. They're trying to make a difference. You, you've got to you've got to have an open heart, and everybody's got to have an opportunity to change. But I do believe that we've got to we've got to do more. There'll be more legislation coming through government, I'm sure, to hold us accountable to some of those commitments. Otherwise, the government will have egg on its face ultimately. Yeah, and let's talk uh, those practicalities. What can manufacturing businesses do in real terms to reduce their carbon footprint in, say, the supply chain, where it's very hard to measure? Yeah, it is. But the, the, ultimately, the easiest thing to do is to focus on the things that are that are right in front of you and work backwards down your supply chain. Um, it's going to be really boring, but I, I suppose most of my colleagues out there that are in manufacturing will understand exactly what I'm saying. But for God's sake, get fix all your air leaks in your factory. <laughs> fix fix water leaks. Fix the basics. Because as soon as you've got an air leak, there's a compressor connected to the grid the other end that's churning out compressed air that's pushing it through the hole into the ether. Yeah. You know, Use heat transfers wherever possible. Engage with your manufacturing processes and share heat wherever there needs to be more opportunity where there is, if we had a tomato uh, greenhouse next to us, they could share some of our heat quite openly. We'd, we'd let them have it. So we we need to be more mindful about our developments. And when you're planning factories and you're planning new facilities, who can you partner up with? What opportunities are there to have a, a local regional dating game that, to, that's putting these two manufacturing resources together? Because we're cooling half of the water in our plant and there are other companies heating water in their plant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it would be good to understand that. But the basics are always the starting point. For us, it's been very much about the efficiencies and the yields and the losses in the factory. Because there, there is there is no point in spending ridiculous amount of time calculating what your carbon footprint is if you're wasting things right in front of you. You're much better off doing the quick stuff first and then focusing on, on picking up not so much the low-hanging fruit, but the stuff that's really hard to get at that we all need to really focus on. 
Good advice. Good advice. Uh, we'll end the show the same way we do every week by asking our guests to tell us the one invention that if it was never manufactured, your life would be unbearable. So what invention could you not live without? <laughs> I couldn't live without my car. And that's, that, <laughs> that's probably a strange thing to most people. My, It's weird really, isn't it? Because um, I've contemplated long and hard over the last few years about a fully electric car, as we have done as we've rolled out a fleet of... Uh, of hybrid cars and one or two electric motors. The reality is the the car technology is one of those uh, inventions that acts as a mobile office for me. I can spend four hours a day in the car most days. It protects me. It moves me from A to A. It keeps me sane by telling me when there's traffic up ahead. But yeah, the, the automobile, I think, is uh, is the finest uh, invention in lots of ways for a businessman, that's for sure. A fine way to get around Yorkshire as well. Absolutely, yes. All it leaves me to do is say thanks to today's guest, Kenton Robbins. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Subscribe to this podcast in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon and Google Music. Thanks for listening to this edition of Remake Manufacturing. I'm your host, Stuart Black. See you next time.